I'm Carrie Miller. This is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's good to have you listening. As college students went back to classes this past fall, the New York Times published a long magazine article with a headline that said, Americans are losing faith in the value of college. Whose fault is that? Brian Rosenberg, the former president of McAllister College, is out with a candid and provocative book that answers that question and many more. Rosenberg writes in the preface, Within almost any college or university, there are important things that, like Lord Voldemort, simply must not be named. Today, a discussion that names those things and asks why colleges are so resistant to change. Indeed, Rosenberg writes in his first chapter, the resistance to anything like serious change is profound. Brian Rosenberg is president emeritus of of McAllister College and a visiting professor at Harvard. And he joins us today from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome back to the show. Long time no chat. Thanks, Carrie. It's great to be with you again. I'm sure you saw this article by Paul Tuff uh, in the I Times. Did. Okay, I, for for listeners who might not have have spotted it, he's writing about why fewer Americans see value in college, given what it costs, and he points out, and this was this was eye opening for me, that while Britain, Canada, South Korea, Japan, Switzerland, and many other countries are all seeing steady increases in the number of students who attain a two or four year degree. The U.S. has been seeing a steady decline in enrollment and graduation rates. Now, Paul Tuff lands on the cost of college and student debt that goes with it as part of the explanation. I think you agree that indeed enrollment and grad rates are slipping. Can we can we all say that that is that can be uh, agreed upon here as we begin our conversation? So enrollments are definitely slipping, uh, both the, the raw number of students in college and the percentage of students in many states that are choosing to go to college. Graduation rates are more varied. Uh, in some sectors, they are slipping. In other sectors, they're holding steady. In other sectors, they're ticking up a lot. But there's certainly been no major improvement in some graduation rates that could only be described as very, very disappointing. I want to make sure I understand what you mean by sectors, though. When you're when you're defining different kinds of graduation rates, what are you looking at? So if you look at, for instance, uh, private uh, nonprofit colleges, graduation rates have not declined. Uh, in many of those colleges, they've actually ticked up. If you look at graduation rates at public institutions and at community colleges, uh, graduation rates have generally gone down. Uh, so it depends on which, and since since most of the students in the U.S. go to those institutions, uh, probably if you average it all out, the overall graduation rates have gone down. Okay. you. We have to point this out, too. You note, and Paul Tuff notes, that the declining enrollment rates of men are especially concerning. What's going on Correct. there? You know, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, over about a 25-year period, the percentage of men and women in higher education completely flipped. So it went from about 60% men uh, to what it is right now, which is about 60% women. Uh, and the number of men continues to trend down. Uh, no one really has provided a totally convincing explanation. The explanations have ranged from uh, the way boys are educated in the K-12 through through 12 system to the opportunities for young men to get more jobs straight out of high school. But 
I can tell you that at McAllister, we essentially had to practice affirmative action for men in order even to reach wow. uh, a male population of 40% of the student body. I mean, so Brian, do you, is it your suspicion that this is because men are choosing to go to work instead of college or are men somehow just kind of dropping out for a while of the overall work economy? I think it's probably more of the former than the latter, uh, but there is some sense, I think, among young men uh, that it's somehow uh, not cool to be academically strong, hmm. whereas I think you find more commonly among women uh, a sense that it is important to, to excel academically. And this, this begins really early, I think, in the K-12 through system, and, and for some men it, it persists. So I I think it's not any single factor. I think there are a variety of factors, but it is something that doesn't get as much attention as it should. Wow, that's really interesting. So back to uh, my introduction and noting that one of the things that this article lays at the feet of college cost and student debt is slipping enrollment, and we've heard your ideas on that, and slipping graduation rates. Do you agree that college cost and the student debt that some students attain has got to be a a key concern for why fewer students are going to college and many are, are not graduating? Of course. The, the, the reality is right now that college costs more than the majority of Americans are able and willing to pay for it. And the costs continue to increase uh, more rapidly than either inflation or the cost of living index. There are good economic reasons for that. But we have reached a point where the most expensive colleges in the country have comprehensive fees that have exceeded $80,000. Wow. Uh, and even even colleges that are not nearly as selective or prestigious still have very, very high uh, sticker prices. And the result is that they are trying to discount that price. But even with the discounts, it's still a lot of money. If you discount $80,000 by 50%, it's still a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, you and I have had many conversations about the cost of college. You point in the book to the ever-rising expense of employee compensation at colleges mm-hmm. and universities and the fact that more and more colleges are on their own in generating revenue. Talk to me first about the employee compensation. So the the budgets of most colleges and universities are pretty simple and pretty similar. Uh, at almost any college that is an in-person institution, you'll find that about two-thirds, 70% of the budget goes toward employee compensation. Uh, and probably the second largest cost center is maintenance of the physical plant. Those campuses are often old and require a, a, a lot of maintenance. And so if you're seriously talking about what's driving up the cost and the ways to reduce the cost, you can't not talk about the main the main expense, which is personnel. And that, that expense has gone up for a couple of reasons. There are more people on a lot of campuses. Uh, people will point to the to the rise, especially in non-faculty staff and administrative staff. 
and the salaries that you need to pay educated workers right now have gone up also more rapidly than either inflation or the cost of living index. So the combination of more people and having to pay the people more has driven up the costs of, of college pretty rapidly without seeing any concurrent increase in efficiency. Uh, and, and that's the problem. So, and the other point here that's made is that more and more colleges are on their own in generating revenue. I think we've seen that in the state of Minnesota, in Wisconsin. Obviously, this is a trend where, what, state legislatures are saying to public uh, institutions, you know, the well is drying up here. You're going to have to figure out where to find the money. And often where they go is to tuition. Is that all fair mm-hmm. to say? It is fair to say. I mean, w- there's been a lot of discussion for years about uh, a gradual, steady public disinvestment in higher education. And you do see it in states like Minnesota and Wisconsin. People, I think, would be shocked uh, at how small a percentage of the budget from someplace like the University of Minnesota comes from the state. I don't know the exact number at Minnesota, but my guess is it's well under 20%. It may even be under 10. Certainly in some states, it's under 10. So most of their money comes from tuition and from fundraising, which means they act more or less like private institutions. So the disinvestment from the public sector has definitely shifted more of the cost onto the students and their families. We should say that you also, later in the book, write about how you will see these trends, I think, most emphatically in states that are run by Republican governors and state legislatures. And you write, Mm -hmm. higher education in these states had become a frequent and visible punching bag, not because it is among the most pressing problems in the state, but because it is among the most inviting targets. Deconstruct that for me. What does that mean? Well, uh, Florida is, I think, in many ways, the poster child for this phenomenon. Uh, There are certain people that have figured out that terms like critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, are very effective tools in culture wars. Uh, And so, you know, in the case of, of someone like the governor of Florida, he has essentially made it the centerpiece both of his administration and of his flagging presidential campaign. Uh, and the reality is that that among all of the problems in a place like Florida, uh, the higher education system is not, in fact, one of the main ones. Uh, so it's, it's an easy target. I have to say that higher education, uh, by not addressing some of its own challenges, mm-hmm. has opened itself up to being an easy target. When you don't fix your own problems yourself, uh, you make yourself vulnerable to those from outside who want to come in and fix your problems for you. I was going to ask you about that. Part of this is, and having covered the state legislature years ago, you know, what kind of a messenger is the college leader to come in to persuade, um, you know, members of the state legislature that not only um, shouldn't they be having to weather cuts, but that some of this money in a year when the state might have extra funding needs to be reinvested, that they can make up some of the deficits. But that rarely seems to happen. wonder why. College presidents try. Uh, 
Uh, obviously, they both try individually and they, for the private colleges, try through organizations like the Minnesota Private College Council. In Minnesota, generally, we've been pretty successful at maintaining and sometimes increasing the state grant program mm-hmm. uh, for students. Uh, but you know, when, when you're looking at other priorities in a state, and, and I'm sympathetic to this, you look at, if you look at a state like Minnesota, uh, you need to make additional investments in K-12. through mm-hmm. uh, You need to make additional investments in health care. Uh, and I think when, when many legislators and many people line up those priorities, uh, healthcare and K through 12 come out on top of higher education. They're seen as more essential. So you're not just competing with, uh, the desire to fund or not fund higher ed. You're competing with other arguably very important funding priorities. And I think a lot of legislators see colleges and universities as more capable of generating revenue than, say, a K-12 through public system. And is that true? It probably is. Uh, you know, they, colleges can fundraise, uh, and colleges do charge tuition. Uh, the Minneapolis or St. Paul public schools have very, very, very few tools to generate revenue other than revenue from the state. And the same is true of, of the healthcare system. I just finished 10 years on the board of Alina Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you that the state of the nonprofit healthcare system in Minnesota is, is pretty dire right now. Uh, and it's not because they're not, they're not serving a lot of, of patients. It's because the payments that come in from things like Medicare and Medicaid don't even cover the costs of the service. So, uh, those areas are are really hurting. They're really important, uh, and uh, it's it's challenging in that context for higher education to make an overwhelming case that it should rise to the top of the list of priorities. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas in a conversation with President Emeritus of McAllister College, Brian Rosenberg. He's out with a new book titled Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, (laughs) Resistance to Change in Higher Education. That gives you a sense of... uh, of why I called this book Candid and Provocative. Uh, At the moment, we've begun our conversation talking about an interesting article that came out uh, in the fall just as college students were going back to campus by Paul Tuff, who examined um, what is happening, why enrollment is dropping at colleges and universities across the country. And if you dig into some of these numbers, graduation rates are either steady or declining. And so this gives me an opportunity to ask Brian about some of the things that uh, Paul Tuff wrote in this article. Uh, Brian, one of the other things that that Tuff asserts in, in this piece is that college um, – This idea that it is the path to financial stability is no longer as simple as it sounds. This is the part of the article I found most interesting. He cites research from Douglas Weber at the Federal Reserve, whose data reveals that there's a lot of variability today in who benefits from a college education. And and just a line from the article, and then I want to let you have at it. He writes, it's now more like going to a casino It's a gamble that can still produce a big windfall, that is a college degree, but it can also bring financial disaster. What do you think? I think that's an overstatement. 
I think that there is some variability, obviously, uh, but most of the data, I think, still show uh, that over the course of a lifetime, the benefits of getting a bachelor's degree uh, more than more than outweigh the negatives of the cost in both money and and time. Now, obviously, these data take time to really collect. You really need to do a longitudinal study and look over the course of someone's life. So it's hard to get a snapshot of any particular moment uh, in a short period. Uh, but I think I would still argue uh, that for most people, it's not it's not a casino that. You know, the odds in a casino are always weighted against the gambler. They're weighted in favor of the house. Uh, I think if you go to college, the odds are clearly still weighted in favor of the student, which is not to say that it will financially benefit every graduate. Uh, and sometimes if you have to take out an enormous amount of loan in order to get through, it might not benefit you. It depends on where you go, what you major in, how well you do, and uh, where in the country you happen to be living. But I would still argue that for most students who go to college, uh, it is it is a good economic choice, which is not to say that everyone should go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you do decide to go, I think the odds are in your favor, which is very different from what you find at a casino. Um, I, I want to come back to, which is not to say that everyone should go, but... This um, research that um, he wrote about at the Federal Reserve, what it sounds like, and I think you've acknowledged this, is that if you come from a family that doesn't have a lot of family resources or or family generational wealth, this is a serious gamble to take on the kind of debt, even if even if that debt does not seem overwhelming to families with more resources, that, but that this is the kind of thing that even a college degree will not, I guess, compensate for, perhaps over the life of a career. I think I hear you acknowledging that that can be the case for not an insignificant number of American families. It, it can. Uh, I think there is uh, a lot of overstatement about the actual percentage of students who take out enormous amounts of debt. What, what do you the mean vast, by that? The vast majority of student debt is, um, is manageable. Uh, we tend to focus on the outliers, the ones who, who have 100000 or $200,000 in debt. But most of the people in the United States who have those kinds of, of enormous debt burdens are people who've gone to graduate and professional school, mm-hmm. uh, people who've gone to medical school, people who've gone to law school, where there isn't the kind of financial aid that you have for undergraduate students. Uh, and so, yeah, you do have people who graduate from medical school with several hundred thousand dollars in debt. But for most of those people, they'll have a medical degree and that will, that will enable them to manage that debt. There is a group, a small group, but there is a group of students uh, that takes out more debt than makes sense in order to attend either college or the particular college that they chose. And for those students, I agree, it's a, it's a really problematic gamble. You also need to look, if you're a, someone like a first-generation student, uh-huh. at which colleges have the greatest success in increasing social mobility. There's been a lot of study of this. Raj Chetty at Harvard has probably done the best work. And there are some colleges that have a great track record of moving students up 
uh, in the social, the social economic scale. There are other colleges that don't have so much success. So if I were a first-generation student or a student without a lot of resources, I would be sure to take a look at the colleges that have a good track record there. And, and what you mean by social mobility is not just will your degree be valued when you get out into the marketplace? What else do you mean and what else does Professor Chetty mean by that? Well, he tends to, his focus is mostly economic. Uh, so he tends to look at what socioeconomic class you are in when you start college. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he focuses mostly on quintiles. So let's say you're a student whose family is in the bottom economic quintile. Uh, where are you five years after you graduated? Have you moved up into the into the uh, the top quintile, the second quintile, the third quintile? Uh, if that's the case, then that would be significant economic mobility, uh, and it, with that also obviously comes different social opportunities. So it's chiefly economic, uh, but it also has to do with all other all kinds of opportunities that are afforded in our society to people who have more means. You said a minute ago. Um you had a qualifier that said not that everyone should go. Right. Um, you know, we're. I think we're still in a culture that says, uh, this may be changing, but if you can manage to go to college, you really should. And that's the, that's the door to economic and social mobility. But I'm interested to hear your qualification and whether you believe more and more families ought to take a harder look at that question. So my my fundamental belief about college is that any student who wants to go to college should have the opportunity to do so, that students should not be excluded on the basis of uh, their economic status or their race or ethnicity from being able to go to college. And right now that is not the case. But I also believe that college is not the right choice for everyone. Uh, there are good jobs. There are well-paying jobs that don't require a college degree. Uh, there are training programs that you see at community and vocational and technical college. There are now some stackable credentials Uh, And increasingly, I just read this morning uh, that Minnesota has just announced that it's no longer going to require bachelor's degrees for probably about two-thirds of the employees that are hired by the state. And you're beginning to see that in a number of states. So uh, if employers uh, begin to say that the bachelor's degree is no longer the golden ticket to a job, what we're looking for is a particular skill set. Uh, first of all, I think you're going to see even more pressure on higher education. Uh, and secondly, it may be true that for more and more students, there are alternative paths to a secure economic future that don't necessarily run through college. Why is the consequence of that even more pressure on higher education? Fewer students. Uh, I think right now the, the, the main thing that is supporting the, the network of higher education in the United States is the fact that it is the gateway. It is perceived as, and in many cases, is the gateway uh, to the vast majority of well-paying jobs. And if it starts to be the case that there are alternative pathways, given how much college costs and given how much of an investment it is in time, it's, it's generally at least four years of your life. Uh, I think you will see 
an even steeper decline hmm. in the percentage of high school graduates who choose college. I think that could be employers could be the tipping point. You know, we talk a lot about, you know, is there some tipping point where this current system of higher education just becomes unsustainable? And I think, honestly, the key will be employers. If they start to decide in any major way that a college degree is not required, uh, then I think it'll dramatically shift the terrain for higher education. Tell me what you think college teaches you. You know, it, there's what I think it should teach you, and then I think hmm. there's what it actually does teach you. <laughs> okay. I think what college should teach you is how to be a lifelong learner. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it should teach you a set of both, I think, hard and soft skills uh, that enable you to be a learner for the rest of your life. So basic things like how to write, uh, how to speak, uh, how to look at a at a graph or a chart or a set of statistics and understand them. Those are skills that you need to be effective both in work uh, and in a, in a democratic society. Uh, I think it also should teach you softer skills like resilience uh, and teamwork and creativity and empathy. Uh, now, does it do those things? I think to some extent it does, but I think there's still, there's still, too much emphasis on filling the student's head with information and not enough emphasis on shaping the kind of thinking and the kind of person that the student is. Uh, and so what, what college is actually doing and what I think it ideally should do, don't, they don't quite line up. And I think about my own college experience. You know, I took a year of organic chemistry. I remember, <laughs> I remember nothing. <laughs> you don't about use that every chemistry. day, huh? <laughs> I don't use it. But I will say that the skills I learned, I took a lot of science classes. Uh, the skills I learned in terms of how to think and how to look at evidence, uh, those things have stuck with me. Mm-hmm. So I, I think more emphasis on, on both intellectual and personal capacity and maybe less emphasis on, on filling students' heads with information that they're probably going to almost immediately forget. I I love to hear you say this because I think of my own college experience at a Franciscan university, and although I was studying to be a writer and a journalist, the classes that really expanded my worldview and my way to think were my theology classes. And, And so, yeah, whatever they taught me about how to write you know, for journalism, I learned that really the first weeks on the job, which isn't that the case for a lot of, a lot of college grads. Absolutely. Absolutely. I I think that most of, you know, my, my oldest son went to excellent liberal arts college and law school. And I've asked him, how much did law school teach you about being a lawyer? And his answer is almost nothing. Oh my gosh. Really? Uh, yeah, you you know, it's a few, you, you take classes in all kinds of law that you're never going to practice. Uh, most of what he learned about the job that he's doing, he learned by doing the job. <laughs> uh, and isn't that true for most people? Yeah. When they when they actually start to do a job, if you're going to college and majoring in biology, and you're going to be a biology professor, absolutely, that information is going to be essential. Uh, but if you're going to college and majoring, majoring in biology and doing almost anything else, 
then probably most of what you learned in those biology courses, you're, you're going to forget. What you will remember uh, are the skills you learned in those laboratories and in those classrooms, but, but very little of the information. And there's a good reason not to pay 80 grand a year for a college education, right? It's, look, it's hard to justify paying 80 grand a year for almost anything. Uh, and, and it's something that, by definition, is within the reach of a tiny, tiny percentage of the population in this country. Uh, and so anything like that that costs $80,000 a year, in, in, in my view, uh, is something that, that needs to take a very, very hard look at its economic model uh, and figure it out if it could achieve good outcomes at a lower cost. You're at Harvard. What, what's, mm-hmm. the, what's the sticker price? And yes, I know about the discounts and everything, but what's the sticker, sticker. price right now at Harvard? You know, the interesting thing about college sticker prices is the highest ones aren't places like Harvard and Princeton. Harvard's is, is certainly over 70. It's somewhere between 70 and 80. Mm-hmm. Uh, the most expensive prices tend to come at institutions that don't have quite as much money mm-hmm. as Harvard and are very, very tuition reliant. I so uh, a college, my guess is that the I don't know this for sure, but my guess is that the sticker price at a place like George Washington University in D.C. Uh, or Middlebury in Vermont is actually higher uh, than the sticker price at Harvard. And that's because, what, they're not using huge endowments to help lower yeah, the – okay. Yeah, they don't have – Harvard can rely on a, on a $50 billion endowment to help defray the costs of running the institution, whereas uh, very few other colleges have anything like that capacity. Is Harvard's endowment really fifty billion? Billion? Yes, it is. Fifty billion. Uh, what in the was... heck? <laughs> a, why? Why do they need such a huge endowment? It's a very good question. I think that you know, unfortunately, depending in my view, unfortunately, uh, too much philanthropy in the in the United States goes to those who are already rich. Yeah. People like to give to wealthy, successful institutions and organizations. Uh, so places like Harvard, my, my alma mater for my PhD, Columbia, uh, is not unusual for them to get three, $400 million gifts. Someone just gave Harvard a $300 million gift to name the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. A $300 million gift for the vast majority of colleges in the country would be absolutely transformational. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for Harvard, it's a, it's a $300 million is a good six months or maybe even a good month in the endowment. Uh, and yet people continue to give those very, very large gifts to very, very wealthy institutions. A lot of it is just math. You know, if you start out with the largest endowment and you keep investing it, unless you make really bad decisions. Uh, and if you keep raising money, you're going to just get larger and larger, and the gap between you and others is going to get greater and greater. Jeez. I'm Carrie Miller. You're listening to a conversation with Brian Rosenberg. He's president emeritus of McAllister College. He's a visiting professor at Harvard. Yes, that one with the $50 billion endowment. And Brian has written a book titled, Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, Resistance to Change in Higher Education. And we're going to talk about some of the places that um, that he critiques um, where colleges and universities are resistant to change. 
I thought this is a simple one, but boy, is this could this make a difference? I thought your argument for changing the academic calendar was really compelling, and I'm going to share this for listeners. The simplest way to reduce the cost of a four-year college degree would be to make it a three-year college degree, and this could be accomplished rather easily by expanding the length of the school year. So is this one of the places where you will find, you know, deep and stubborn resistance to change at most institutions? Yes. Why? Uh uh, you know, there are there are different reasons at different institutions. I think the most common reason that you'll hear uh, at many institutions is that those breaks are necessary for faculty to do research. At at many, many colleges and universities in the country, uh, the the faculty job is defined as a combination of teaching and research. And if you're going to do research, you need time in order to do it. And so you need the, and this is the way the argument goes, you need a a long break in the summer and in the case of many institutions, a pretty long break in the winter. If you took away those breaks, the opportunity for faculty to do research would be be dramatically diminished. Uh, And so I think it's that teacher-scholar model, uh, which I think in many ways makes it almost impossible at many institutions to change the calendar. It would also mean for faculty members teaching more courses each year. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it would increase the workload. And there's no, and I don't blame faculty for this, how many employees uh, would want to have their workload increase and their salary not increase. So I think that the the challenge of getting faculty to to teach more courses in a 12-month period without significantly increasing their compensation would be a really great one. So this is part of the reason that, as I understand this, you are you are recommending that teaching institutions and research institutions be two different things. I know I've really simplified it, but is that essentially it? Well, it's – I mean, yes and no. I think the, the model of the teacher-scholar of a single institution that focuses both on teaching and research – is one that originated in Germany and was imported to the United States in the 19th century. Uh, And it is around that idea that the great research universities in the United States grew up. You know, Harvard started as Harvard College. It didn't start as a research institution. But about the middle of the 19th century, when you saw the University of Minnesota and lots of of land-grant institutions and lots of of private institutions grow up, uh, you got this model where... Faculty were expected both to teach uh, and to be world-class researchers. What has happened is that model, which originated at places like Harvard or the University of Minnesota, has spread much more broadly throughout higher education. So now you find it also at places like McAllister uh, and at many liberal arts colleges and at many uh, public state colleges About the only sector where faculty are expected just to be teachers is the community college sector. And and I really respect that. You know, the community college faculty teach extraordinarily heavy loads and they they are not expected to do research. The problem when you have that dual model is that those two activities, each of which is valuable, uh, can in fact come into tension with each other. 
if you're spending more time and more em- emphasis on research, then almost inevitably you're spending less on teaching. Teaching loads at many of these institutions have generally declined. Uh, and there is not a lot of evidence, as I point out in the book, uh, that being a more prolific researcher necessarily makes you a better classroom teacher. So it's not that I don't think there should be research institutions, uh, but I think that the model of the research institution has sort of expanded uh, and has taken over some institutions where it probably is less appropriate and faculty should probably focus more on teaching. You write, the more prestigious the research university, the less relevant teaching is to tenure and promotion. Well, I mean, I understand we need the kind of research that's going on at some of these institutions. But but if teaching is less relevant, aren't we missing the reason that a lot of students are there? Look, it's in many ways, it's a crazy profession. You know, we call it higher education. But what is the what is the degree that you need in most cases to become a, a faculty member in higher education? It's the Ph.D., uh, and the Ph.D. degree focuses almost entirely on training you as a researcher. Uh, there is, when I was got my Ph.D., there was no focus on training you as a teacher. Uh, now, at many Ph.D. programs, there's a minimal focus. Mostly you learn how to be a teacher by being thrown into the deep end of the pool and just being put into a classroom. <laughs> uh, but you get very little training uh, as, a, as a Ph.D. student in in actually providing an education. You get training to be a, a scholar, uh, a researcher, and you're getting prepared to be a scholar and a researcher at a research institution. And then the vast majority of faculty who are fortunate enough get, to get jobs end up at institutions where they're expected to do a lot of teaching. And there is no, there is no training. And then when it comes to evaluating faculty, certainly at a place like Harvard, uh, or I would argue probably at a place like the University of Minnesota, uh, getting tenure is almost entirely dependent on your work as a scholar hmm. and has very, very little to do uh, with your work as a teacher, which in my view is sort of crazy uh, in an industry that calls itself higher education. Because... I mean, that seems really distorted because you the emphasis is not on the customer, quote unquote, that you're serving. Right. Isn't that the bottom line? I think certainly it's true at at large research institutions. It's hard to argue uh, that at, you know, a typical Ivy League institution, the education of undergraduates is at the top of the list of priorities. Uh, if you look at where the budgets go, if you look at where the, the resources go, uh, it goes to other places. And there's, there's very little evidence that the quality of teaching at those institutions is better than the quality of teaching at institutions with, with fewer resources. So I do think it's the case that when, when these institutions make their budgets, which, which reflect their priorities, undergraduate teaching is not at the top of the list. And I do think there's something wrong with that. I don't want to go too uh, inside, inside on tenure. You write something about this, but for most of us, it's a complicated, mysterious process that doesn't make a lot of sense. Are, are there – let me ask it this way. Are there 
if you really gave college presidents truth serum on tenure, what would they say about the system the way it is at their own institutions and others right now? So let me preface this by saying, and I say this in the book, that this was, I'm not sure in writing about this whether I was uh, being honest or being masochistic, but I was, I was really determined in this book uh, to, to grab all of the third rails that uh, most <laughs> yes, people were. in higher education try to avoid. I didn't see any point in writing a book that was, that was going to shy away from the truth. And so, you know, let me preface it by saying that I spent 20 years of my career uh, on a tenure track. I had tenure as a professor. I had tenure as a dean. I did not have tenure as a president of McAllister. I don't believe college presidents should have tenure. I know I'm a little bit of an outlier there. Um, but, but, you know, I, I have this deep, almost cellular level allegiance to tenure because of my own history. Uh, but, but the reality is if you asked most college presidents and gave them truth serum, uh, they would say that tenure is, tenure is a problem. Uh, and the reason they would say that tenure is a problem is for, for a number of the reasons that I discuss in the book, it makes it very, very possible, very, very difficult, uh, to, to change what you're doing at an institution in anything but a, a, a very, very small, slow, incremental way, um, even when you're under tremendous financial or public pressure. One of the things that you write uh, about your your own ilk, college presidents, you seem to be arguing that there really is no upside for college presidents <laughs> to push for change, that the status quo uh, privately – College presidents might tear their hair out about it and, you know, bemoan what's happening with lower grad rates and enrollment, but that they really – there is no real upside for them to be change agents. Do I have that right? Well, there's only an upside in being a change agent if you could actually change things. Uh, if trying to change things will almost certainly result in failure – uh, and will, uh, in many cases, result in the loss of your job, then obviously very few people are going to be incentivized to push for change. And you know, we're seeing that in the, the average tenure of college presidents, which has now, now dropped to about five and a half years. Uh, and about 12 years ago, it was eight and a half years. And my guess is if you went back even further, it would be longer. Uh, so college presidents are lasting fewer years in their job. Uh, and those who come in and try to push very heavily for change are often the ones who only last a couple of years because, you know, to be totally honest, they, they crash up against a wall of resistance. They don't have as much power as many people, both inside and outside higher education, believe. College presidents are much more like the mayors of small cities than they are like CEOs of for-profit corporations. Uh, they can't simply, like Captain Picard, say, make it so. <laughs> uh, more like a mayor, you have all kinds of political constituencies, and a mayor has city council and zoning commissions uh, and unions, and college presidents face very, very similar challenges. You have many constituencies, not any of which have the have the power to actually 
force something to happen, but most of which have the power to stop something from happening. So when you say they crash up against the wall of resistance, I hear you saying there are constituencies that band together to to create that wall. But but are the faculty often a key brick in that wall? They're probably the most important brick uh, in the wall. I think that certainly at at a college that has tenure, uh, the people at that college, the employees at the college, despite what people think about college presidents, who have the most security uh, are tenured faculty. Uh, and so since you have that kind of security, it there's really no cost uh, for you to be oppositional. Uh, and there's really no benefit to you uh, to have to deal with dramatic change. You know, if you have, if you have an assurance of a position for the rest of your, of your working life, which tenured faculty more or less do, um, there's not a lot of extrinsic incentive for you to say, you know, I, I want things to be very different from the way they are right now. And so, you know, in my experience in talking with college presidents, even at institutions that are facing enormous financial pressure, uh, it is very, very hard to persuade uh, a, a faculty body to be in support of dramatic change. And so, you know, other constituencies exercise power in different ways. Alumni can threaten to withhold donations. Students can can picket and occupy offices uh, trustees can threaten to fire you. So there are lots of constituencies that can bring pressure. But I think uh, the one that has the most power is unquestionably the tenured faculty. You know, um, you write about Michael Crow, who has who has been one of these change agents at Arizona State. And I went back to read an interview with him. And he said, it was a interesting interview. He kind of displays a lot of the qualities that you write about him in in your book. Um, In the interview, he said, when he was asked about the most important thing that public research universities should be doing, they should be expanding the number of people who graduate, people from the lower half of the family income distribution. That's what we've made huge progress on, more than I've even thought possible. If he can do it, why can't more college presidents do it? You know, Crow is in an interesting and I think somewhat unusual situation, you know, from and I I am not on the ground at Arizona State, so I I'm basing what I'm saying on on secondhand information, but from what I've read about him uh and about the institution, he he has pretty much just decided he's going to circumvent uh shared governance. <laughs> and so he does in fact act more like uh, a corporate CEO, and he has the backing of a board to do that. And, and I would assume that the the laws governing public universities in Arizona allow him to do that. So he's able to do things like decide on his own that a department is going to go away. Uh, whereas at most colleges, the president does not have the ability to decide on his or her own uh, that something like that is going to happen. So I'm not always a fan of his style, but you know he's he's done what he's done at Arizona State essentially by acting more like a corporate CEO than like a typical college president. And I'm not sure that model would work everywhere. I hear you, and yet 
and, and the numbers do back this up, that if he if he is finally figuring out how to bring more students in from lower income families and see that they graduate, he's doing something that a lot of other institutions could could take a lesson from, isn't he? Well, and, you know, what Arizona State has done, what Southern New Hampshire has done mm-hmm. under under Paul O'Neill, you know, they've moved very, very heavily into distance learning, uh, into online learning. So they're, they're in effect two different institutions. There's the on-campus institution, which functions a lot more like a traditional university, but then there's the, the online institution, which reaches a lot more students, a different student population, more non-traditional students, uh, more first-generation students, uh, and has dramatically increased the student numbers. Now, what you have to look at very carefully are the completion rates Mm -hmm. at at those online institutions. They tend to be lower. So you can't just look at enrollment rates. You also have to look at at completion rates. Uh, But but they've, they've essentially created new institutions as they've been trying slowly to change the existing institution. Uh, and, you know, that's something that, that most colleges don't have the resources to do or don't have the, uh, don't have the courage to do. But, but that's, that's the way they've dramatically increased their impact. You know, that's not how I would have wanted to go to college, but it's a different time. And with what we said at the beginning of the conversation about how fewer men are enrolling or graduating and college enrollment is declining. What do you think overall of both the argument for and against more of an online experience for college students? You know, it's a it's a complex question. I'm actually dealing with this right now in a very direct way because one of the one of the things that I'm doing spending a lot of time on is working a, on a university in Africa. Uh, the African Leadership University, which was founded by a McAllister alumnus, Fred Swanaker. Mm-hmm. And, and in Africa, obviously, people can't pay, not only can they not pay $70,000, they can't pay $10,000 uh, for a college education. And so it's inevitable that you have to rely more heavily on distance learning. Uh, and so the question is, how can you do that? Uh, and not run into a lot of the pitfalls that traditionally accompany distance learning. The completion rates tend to be low. Uh, the sense of community tends to be poor. The sense of isolation uh, can be can be very powerful. The people who are most successful at distance learning tend to be people who are already experienced learners, hmm. not an 18-year-old first-generation student who, who is straight out of high school. So is there some way to take the capacity of distance learning to reach more people and to reach a a more diverse group of people and combine that with more effective educational practices that help improve learning, completion rates, work against the sense of isolation. Uh, I think think there are ways to do that, uh, but the only way to to find that out is if more colleges were willing to really ask those questions and experiment. So at, at, at ALU, for instance, students spend one term on campus. Hmm. Uh, so they come to campus for one term. Uh, they build a sense of community. Uh, they meet other students. They, they get taught in person. The whole first term is 
is taught in common. They do a leadership core where wow. they, they learn all of those skills that I just talked about. And then after, and by the way, it's a three-year degree. Hmm. Uh, so, so shorter breaks in between the terms. Uh, and then the rest of the learning is a combination of online learning, experiential learning. So they're required to do internships. And one of the things that I think colleges have not been very good at is taking advantage of all the opportunities to learn that, that, that exist outside the walls of a campus uh, and some in-person learning. And so they can li- they don't have to live on the campus. They can, they can live, a lot of them choose to stay near the campus, but they can go home and learn from there. There are hubs that they can, they can meet in. Um, and it's much, much less expensive. Uh, and the, the, the faculty play a very different role. There aren't enough PhDs in Africa to staff what would look like an American university. And so most of the faculty are more like coaches and guides, and there's more reliance on the students as self-directed learners. Super interesting. so, So I think there are, you know, is this all figured out? Not yet. Uh, but it seems to me that it's the kind of path that we need to go down if we're seriously talking about reaching more people, lowering the cost, becoming more effective. It's not that technology is the answer, but if you think about all the industries that have that have adopted technology, higher education has been one of the slower ones, which is ironic, uh, given the fact that a lot of these technological innovations were developed at universities. Uh, And then those same universities have been very slow to adopt what they've developed. I want you to reflect on one larger question to kind of close our our discussion. What do you think it means for the future of America when there are projections that show that we're going to be short somewhere between 6.5 and 8 million college graduates – by 2030. I mean, you know, when I see that, I think this is not some distant future. This is six years away. I mean, what is this? Give me the kind of the the existential concern that you have when you see numbers like that. You know, I think as a country, we're, I'm not sure whether we're shooting ourselves in the foot or the head. Uh, But, you know, the combination of a higher education system that isn't reaching, isn't making itself accessible to nearly enough students uh, and to nearly a diverse enough group of students. And I have to say immigration policies that are making it harder and harder to bring in those educated workers from other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. A lot of those people still want to come here, uh, believe it or not. They still want to come. But it it is increasingly difficult uh, for them to get here. The only way, honestly, given the demographics of the United States, the Demo- United States is an aging country. The average age in the U.S. right now is 38, and it's getting older. Uh, and demographics, in, especially in areas where, where we both are, in the Northeast and the Midwest, uh, are dropping, so there are going to be fewer high school graduates. Uh, the only way to deal with this uh, in addition to making the higher education system more affordable and accessible, uh, is to welcome people from outside the United States who want to come here and work and learn uh, rather than chasing them away. So 
I think we have to make higher education more affordable and accessible, and we have to make our immigration policies uh, more flexible and friendly if we're going to deal with that problem. And it, it is, I spent a lot of time during my years in Minnesota working with the Itasca group on exactly mm-hmm. that question. Believe me, the CEOs in, in Minnesota, uh, which, as you know, has a lot of large companies, they are keenly aware of the fact that that there is right now and will continue to be a worsening problem uh, with a shortage of educated workers. And you cannot sustain a knowledge economy like Minnesota's unless you have educated workers. You know, the other thing I worry about with this is it will only deepen whether it is a true class divide or a or a perceived in some ways class divide and that that goes nowhere good for the kind of country and culture that we're living in now no it it does not it not does not go anywhere good i think it, it gets back to my argument that that anyone who wants to go to college should be able to i don't think our argument should be that that people who are college educated are are better or that college is the only way to be successful in life. Uh, but I think the key is opportunity. If people feel like it's, it's that they have agency, that it's their choice. I choose to go to college or I choose not to go to college. Mm-hmm. That's very different from saying I can't go to college. And because I can't go to college, I cannot have the kind of life, uh, the kind of opportunity the kind of respect that people who do go to college have. Uh, So right now, for many, many people, it's not a choice. I think if it were a choice and you felt like you had some control over that, then it might help uh, diminish a little bit some of that divide, which in many ways is, is tearing the country apart. Brian Rosenberg is president emeritus of McAllister College. He's a visiting professor at Harvard, and his new book is called Whatever It Is, I'm Against It, Resistance to Change in Higher Education. Brian, thank you for a – I really loved the conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. 